Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. Uh, we're going to get started in a few minutes, but we're um, just giving people a chance to join. And um, we'll, so we'll start in about two or three minutes. Um, uh, John Gleason is here and uh, being a part of this debate, so we're glad to have him here. John, thanks for being here. Oh, no, thank you for uh, having me for this debate. And I always get a, uh, always love to have a chance to talk about this uh, particular subject. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so we're going to be debating uh, the evidence for the existence of God. So we're, what we're leaning on is the evidence. Um, and I, met, I actually met John through a reference. I was actually speaking at a conference um, on the evidence for the existence of God and a, uh, a gentleman came up to me at the table and said, hey, um, you should talk to a friend of mine and, uh, about this. And I was thinking it was, it was somebody who, you know, just happened to be like his neighbor or something. And turns out John has a huge YouTube channel and everything with uh, hundreds of videos here. So uh, that's not what I was expecting, but um, it's been good to get to know John a little bit here. And he, um, I actually invited him to speak in my class um, last year with my seniors, not last year, last week with my seniors, uh, to be able to share his perspective. I like my, my students to be challenged and, um, to be able to hear other pe people's opinions, um, because, uh, we want to be able to, you know, ultimately, uh, get to the truth and look for, uh, what is real. So, um, I think that's really important, um, when we're dealing with issues of origins and these sorts of things. So um, uh, we're going to get started here, but again, uh, John, I want, um, I want to uh, thank you again for being here, and, uh, and please uh, keep your, your comments and everything um, clean. We're, uh, <laughs> we're trying to have a, a good uh, forum here where everybody's welcome, and uh, uh, the policy basically is if you're causing trouble or uh, creating controversy, then um, our tech guy has the right to ban you. So, Robert, if you can clean up the chat bar, that'd be great. Um, and just keep everything clean. So, um, uh, John has done me the courtesy of, of uh, giving me the uh, opportunity to start first. So, I'm going to kick it off here. And the outline of our debate today is going to be 15 minutes for each of us to present our case. And then uh, we'll have a 10 minute rebuttal on each side. Then we'll have a five minute closing. Then we'll have a discussion and question time. So where uh, you can ask questions uh, of each one of us and we'll just alternate questions back and forth. And uh, that'll be the case. Uh, that'll be what we're doing. Um, and so um, I'm gonna get started here. I'm gonna just start my timer here. I'm gonna share my screen with you and uh, you can um, follow along with me here as I make the case for theism and that uh, the best conclusion based on the evidence we have is that there is a God that exists. We're specifically debating the existence of God. Um, we are not um, at this point debating whether specifically the Bible is true or not, although there may be some overlap there and that may come into play a little bit, but our focus is on the existence of God. Okay, so here we go. Okay, so evidence one um, that I have here is uh, theism says that um, functional information comes from an intelligent mind, whereas atheism says that functional information can arise naturally. And so, again, I'm making the case from my perspective of what, why I believe in God. 
if I found a rock that looked like this, and I told you that I found this rock out in the desert and it was, it was caused by wind and rain, uh, most people would say, no, you didn't. Somebody carved that. And this is because um, the mind is able to recognize design, meaning there are things that are naturally caused by the natural laws of physics, and then there are other things that are caused by an intelligent mind. And the, the human mind is able to identify the difference and, and see what is designed and what is not. Um, now, there's been a lot of studies on this. William Dembski is the, the kind of the go-to guy on this. He um, has studied this. He has uh, Cambridge studies in probability. And he ended up um, explaining in detail how the human mind identifies design. And so two of the things, and I'm simplifying this for the sake of our discussion here, but two of the uh, characteristics that the human mind identifies is, is it an unlikely natural object or event? And is it a pattern I recognize? If we get a yes to it is an unlikely natural object or event, right? We don't typically find rocks that are shaped like dolphins with little fins and eyes and a mouth. And is it a pattern I recognize? If we get two yeses, the human mind says that is definitely designed. That's what's happening. And this is the, and again, I'm simplifying this, but this is the process of how the mind identifies design around the world, whatever it might be. And this plays into things like a forensic science. So in forensics, what they're looking for is if there was a death, was it caused by natural causes or was it caused by a, a, a mind? Did somebody formulate a plan uh, for somebody to die? And so in forensics, uh, this, this is a, an ability to distinguish between what's happening here. This also applies in things like um, anthropology or archaeology. So for example, this rock here, the human mind looks at it and goes, is it a pattern I recognize? And is it an unlikely natural object? And the answer is yes. That's how we distinguish between just a rock and an arrowhead or some other um, information in that regard. Um, somebody's writing on my screen. I, if you could not do that, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but uh, this is my first online debate here. So all kinds of exciting things. Um, so is intelligent design science? Um, well, many people would argue yes, and many people would, some people would argue no, but the reality is, is that what is intelligent design? It's the ability to identify things in nature that are best explained as a result of an intelligent mind. So for example, an instruction manual, when we look at it, is it an unlikely natural object or event? If you found it, you're walking through the forest and there's an instruction manual, you're going to say, this is not a, a uh, likely natural object or event. And your mind automatically begins to think, hmm, this was designed by a mind. Is it a pattern I recognize? Absolutely. Words are patterns we recognize. Therefore, um, the mind says this was designed. That's what, um, that's what happens. So we say intelligent causation. And this is how we're able to identify uh, that source. Now, the, the crux of the issue is this. The definition of information is specifically, and what we're talking about here is functional information. Um, uh, functional data uh, is this, data that has been manipulated or organized to convey knowledge. So what does that mean? This can apply to a lot of different things. So for example, um, you can have Morse code, uh, the series of, of dots and dashes is uh, information. It's data that has been manipulated or organized to convey knowledge. Music can be used that way. Um, you can use anything almost, right? You can arrange uh, shells on the seashore and you can convey information because you have data that has been manipulated or organized to convey knowledge. 
Um, and so uh, you can have uh, information is inherently an unlikely object and a pattern I recognize. Now, what do I mean by that? Information by its very nature, its very essence, is an unlikely object and a pattern I recognize because we know of no, no source in nature that is able to provide information. Meaning, in order to convey knowledge, you have to have a mind convey knowledge, you convey information. It doesn't come from a natural source. The wind does not try to convey information because it has no mind, therefore it's not trying to, and that's why things, in, you know, from the laws of physics and how everything is governed, um, we don't see information in that regard. Information is never naturally caused. It is always from an intelligent design from a mind, as far as we know. Now, remember, what I'm arguing for is the probability of God's existence. So what I'm doing is I'm saying what is most probable, that God does exist or that he doesn't exist based on the evidence that I see around me. So examples of information are Morse codes, smoke signals, uh, organized letters, binary code, whatever it might be. There's lots of sources of information, but they always come from a mind. Now, I've heard people say that the genetic code is not information, but all the definitions we have of the genetic code of the DNA is that it is information. It is telling proteins how to organize themselves. This is from genome.gov. Why is it called a genetic, genetic code? Specifically because it is four chemical letters, and it's a lot more complex than this, but it's four chemical letter, letters that are organized in order to tell proteins what to do. It's literally an instruction manual telling proteins how to organize themselves to ultimately build a living organism. And so, uh, and this is in everything. This is in plants. It's in every living organism. So similar to how a computer um, uses potentially binary code. Now, I know that's a very base language, but uh, zeros and ones, there's a pattern there. Um, and if the, the binary code is not programmed properly, anybody who's a computer programmer knows this, if, the pro if it's not programmed properly, then you're going to have uh, problems with the computer. It's not going to run properly. And very similar to that, um, DNA is the programming code for a human being. If the code is not organized properly, if you take out, uh, you have nucleotide substitutions, right? If you have what are called point mutations, and those point mutations ultimately don't, uh, don't uh, move things forward or they, they create a problem, then you're going to have a very serious problem. You can't just move it however you want. You can't just do whatever you want with it. And so in the same way that binary code is the programming language of a human, it is the programming information, so is DNA the programming information for a, a person or a living organism. Now, the significance of this is huge because Dean Kenyon, he was one of the leading chemical evolutionists in the world, he was an agnostic, and ultimately, he became a theist specifically because he could not figure out how you could get DNA into a cell um, when the cell didn't exist yet. How did you get that organized information to tell the cell how to build itself? Um, one had to, the, they had to pre-exist each other, right? You can't have the cell without the DNA. You can't have the DNA without the cell. And so f ultimately, his conclusion was, there's only one source for this information, and that must be some sort of super intelligent being that is able to put those instructions in there so that every living thing can organize it, can, can uh, know how to build itself. Bill Gates said DNA is like a computer program, only much more complex than any we have been able to devise. All over the world, people are envious of the DNA 
and the, the density of the information within the, the DNA and how it's able to uh, convey all this information is such a compact information. So if we take the, the method through which we understand design and we apply it here to DNA, is it an unlikely natural object or event? Well, remember what we said. Um, information is inherently an unlikely natural object or event because it must come from a mind. So literally, information is never, quote, naturally produced through just the natural laws of physics and nature. It's always from a mind. So the answer is yes. Is it a pattern we recognize? Oh, most definitely. In fact, we can manipulate the, the DNA and, and the human genome. And we know exactly where uh, the letters are that, that cause certain features of us or disease or whatever it might be. And so ultimately, the conclusion here is that it's intelligent causation. If DNA is information on how to build a person and information comes from an intelligent mind, then this is scientific proof we were designed by God. Now, the significance here is that this is not an argument from ignorance. This is not a God of the gaps argument. This is not, hey, we don't know how it works, therefore God did it. What this is, the conclusion that's being drawn here is this, that if it's true that information only comes from a mind, ultimately, then it must be a mind. It's evidence-based. This is not a God of the gaps argument. It's evidence-based, meaning we have, this is where the evidence is leading us. It's not something that we're saying, I don't know how it works, therefore, God. It's saying the most likely, the most probable, the, the, the uh, conclusion that makes the most sense right, is that a mind ultimately designed the human DNA. Okay, evidence to in support of theism. Um, I'm probably not going to get through all this, but um, I'll get through as much as I can. Living organisms were created with kinds, families. All living organisms evolved from the first life. So theism says that living organisms were created with in kinds or families of animals, whereas atheism says all living organisms evolved from the first life through undirected mutations and natural selection. Now, I'm well aware that... Um, there are uh, theistic evolutionists. There are people who believe in evolution and God. And so naturally, you don't, it doesn't disprove God's existence simply because evolution turned out, if, it, if evolution turned out to be true. Um, but on the other hand, if evolution turns out to be false, you have a significant problem with believing in atheism because uh, then you don't have just a material process that developed us. You actually have to resort to a supernatural pro uh, being. Um, ultimately, um, because this is through the process of elimination. So meaning if as we move things off the table, we only have so many options left. And so this is an inference to the best explanation. This is, uh, this is the process of elimination drawing us to the conclusion that there must be a super intelligent being um, because of what we see around us. So undirected mutations, I always use this in my class, Marvel capitalized on the theory of evolution. And although uh, this is a little tongue-in-cheek. Um, I, I, I'm just making a joke here. But what is an undirected mutation? Because the two key components for evolution to work are undirected mutations and natural selection. So what is an undirected mutation? You can see the definition I have here below here. And we are recording this. This will be up for you later to, to, to review. But um, if I break this down into just basic language, an undirected mutation is a mistake in the programming code of living organism. That's what a uh, undirected mutation essentially is. Um, now the question is, did undirected mutations with natural selection take us from jellyfish to humans? From that single living, that original first living organism all the way to what we are today.
Now, Dr. John Sanford is a scientist who ultimately concluded that you cannot, um, you can, the, the genetic code does not justify evolutionary theory. Underactive mutations do not ultimately lead to um, the, the, do not support the evolutionary claim. So basically, uh, to break this down, Dr. Sanford in his book on genomic de degeneration actually talks about throwing letters, undirected mutations into the programming code. So for example, when you throw a point mutation in, you have 3 billion letters in your, your uh, human genome. And when you throw a, a mutation in, it's a change in the letters. So this is an instruction manual to make a wagon. And I throw in an undirected mutation, that is a point mutation. And you can see that what's happening here, and I'm, this is very sim simple here what I'm doing, I'm adding undirected mutations to the instruction manual. Now the claim of evolution is that through this process of undirected mutations, with natural selection weeding out the bad things that, that take, the bad organisms that develop out of this, ultimately over millions and millions and billions of years, you will have upwards evolution. But in fact, what Dr. Sanford has shown and what population genetics is, is showing is that you are only contaminating the human genome and making it harder to read. That's what's happening in this wagon illustration. The instruction manual over time will get harder and harder to read and, uh, and weed it out. So the problem is that random mutations can't add useful information to the DNA and natural selection only selects useful changes. Because there's nothing guiding the process of undirected mutations, meaning there's no mind, there's no purpose, there's no plan to evolve because of that, what happens is those mutations don't actually add useful information to the genome. They actually cause more problems. And so over time, what you have is you have the degeneration of the human genome. You cannot get from a single-celled organism up to 10 trillion cells without ultimately killing the organism in the process because you've contaminated it so much. This cannot happen. There is nothing in science that has demonstrated that this is possible. So what we now know is that equivocally beneficial mutations, which still have a downside, are extremely rare, about one in 10,000. Unequivocally beneficial mutations are non-existent in nature. What does that mean? Sickle cell anemia is, often comes up as, as an example of a mutation, but what does it do? it creates cells that are shaped in the shape of a, a sickle. Now they give a benefit, which is that you're more resistant to malaria, but they also kill the organism um, because of the danger of sickle cell anemia. So what you end up doing is you get what's called an equivocally beneficial mutation. It has an upside, but it also has a downside. And the problem is, is that there are far more mutations that have a downside than that have an upside. And so what happens is, Let's say you're moving from a chimp-like ancestor to a human. Well, there's 50 million nucleotide changes that need to take place in order to get there. And the question is, and, and what does the evidence tell us? You could not get from that chimp-like ancestor to a human without first killing the organism because of the amount of changes that have taken place. What we're seeing now is that the human mutation rate is at least 100 nucleotide substitutions per person per generation, meaning 100 undirected mutations per generation. That's a minimum. Many population geneticists believe it's much higher than that. And so uh, my daughter has cystic fibrosis. Well, in 1983, a child with cystic fibrosis only lived to two years old. So the question becomes this, it's only a change in three nucleotides. 
if it just three nucleotide changes can kill an organism, how can we ex be expected to believe, right, by faith, that you can go from a chimp-like ancestor to a human through that undirected process, through undirected mutations, when all it takes is three to kill an organism, three, those three changes. This is just not feasible. It doesn't make sense. And this is why, a big part of why a lot of scientists right now are really questioning the theory of evolution because the science is demonstrating that it's not feasible to ultimately rely on undirected mutations and natural selection to get you the complexity of life that we see all over the planet. Because this would have to go for not just a chimp-like ancestor to a human, but it would have to go for every li living organism on planet Earth. That process would have to go perfectly like that. And, and I, I'll go, go ahead and get, get into this more later on. My time's about up. But the, the point being here is, is that science, the evidence, is actually pushing us towards an intelligent mind, which has ultimately designed everything. And uh, so uh, thank you for um, listening to me here. I'm going to turn it over to John Gleason. And uh, John, uh, go ahead and take it away. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, uh, Kevin, for your presentation. Um, now, of course, my, my uh, um, uh, beginning arguments uh, uh, introduction here is, is not going to be directly in response to Kevin's presentation. I did, I did take a lot of notes for us to get into maybe later, but uh, I first wanted to present um, you know, my, my, uh, introduction here. And that's, uh, pretty much why I think theism is an insufficient explanation for anything. Um, so, uh, first off, m my arguments rely on the prior probability of any one religion being the correct version of theism. And then, uh, it also relies on the insufficient nature of theism's explanations, uh, for events in reality. And then finally, the bad arguments to use to, uh, to argue for the existence of a god. So first, I want to lay out the prior probability that any one definition of god or theistic belief is the correct one. Currently, there are 4,200 religions in existence today, with many more that have existed in the past. All these past religions have been proven to be false we know that Zeus does not throw lightning bolts. We know that a rainbow-colored snake hasn't vomited out the Australian aboriginals. We know that Uranus didn't impregnate Gaia and give birth to Titans. Those are beliefs of past religions. At the time, they were considered to be representations of reality. This is the fate of all religious ideas. Even in Christianity, we have obsolete ideas. The creation of the earth in Genesis is not representative of reality. The earth and the diversity of life that we find on earth today was not created 6,000 years ago. And even ideas like God man mandating the taking of slaves have changed. We know that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. We know that the universe is at least 13.5 billion years old. We know that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. The prior probability of an idea that doesn't match what we experience in reality being true is essentially zero. Every idea that is true should match what we find in reality. 
the likelihood of any one of these religious ideas being correct, uh, being the correct religious idea, is vanishingly small. However, they can all be wrong. Next is uh, the insufficient explanations that theism has for events that happen in reality. Ultimately, the only explanation that theism can provide is God. During the current pandemic, we have seen this inability of religion to explain anything about the situation or how to protect ourselves. Countless numbers of people have the irrational belief that they are covered in the blood of Jesus and therefore cannot contract a communicable disease. Preachers and pastors uh, still demand their congregation meet for worship because they, are, they think they are immune to the disease simply because they are Christian. Going even deeper into the theology, you would blame humans for viruses in general. Original sin in Christian theology is the reason why viruses even exist today. We disobeyed God, therefore we are to blame for this uh, virus. We know that the current pandemic is a natural virus. It evolved uh, from existing versions of the coronavirus, claiming that the only reason why it exists is that a woman ate some fruit 6,000 years ago is irrational. Again, the only explanation that theism provides is God, and that's not an answer to anything. We all have also heard that God has a plan. What was God's plan for this pandemic? Is it to punish the Jews, as some Muslims have proposed? Is it to punish everyone that isn't Jewish, like some rabbis have proposed? Is it punishment for homosexuality and sexual deviance, like um, uh, there, 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 he was an online preacher recently that actually espoused this? Um, all of the reasons that religion can give us for the motive or plan behind current, the, this current pandemic cannot be simultaneously right. They can all be simultaneously wrong, and in fact, they are all wrong. This pandemic is not a punishment from God. It's a natural event that happened before in 1968, 1956-58, 1918, 1910— uh, 1889, 1852 to 1860, and etc. What were we being punished for then? Simply existing? Natural events have natural causes, not supernatural ones. Every supernatural event that has supposedly happened in the past has always been proven to be a natural event later. Take lightning, for example. The ancient Greeks thought Zeus wielded lightning as his weapon. Every place struck by lightning was considered sacred. Muslims have also attributed lightning to their God. Jeremiah 51.16 claims that God controls lightning. All of these supernatural ideas can and are false, can be and are, and are false. We know that lightning is caused by large collections of positively and negatively charged particles interacting with each other. Normally, this occurs in the clouds, but also does happen between the clouds and the ground. This process is dictated by the physics of the natural world. We have no need for a supernatural explanation when we have a natural one. Again, the only explanation that theistic ideas can give us is God. Finally, I want to go over the arguments for God's existence. 
there have been several arguments made for the existence of God. The cosmological argument suggests that there is a transcendent, uh, transcendental first cause of the universe, and that cause is God. This argument makes a leap in logic from what caused the inflation of the universe and connects it to God. The bigger leap in logic occurs when it is used to suggest a specific definition of God. I agree that something caused the inflation of the universe, but you don't have the evidence to say that this cause was God. You must first prove that natural events need supernatural intervention in order to prove, uh, in, order, in order for it to happen. Next, the teleological argument. Uh, this is just an argument from design. It postulates that if something looks designed, then it must be designed. Everything that was designed has a creator. Therefore, oh crap, hold on. So sorry, I uh, messed up on that. Just be, uh, therefore, in the, the universe has a creator since it looks designed. Uh, just because you think the, the universe looks designed doesn't mean that it is designed. Again, if we have a natural explanation, then we don't need a supernatural one. The moral argument is likewise insufficient. The moral argument speculates that God is needed for morality to be absolute or objective. If there is no absolute, uh, objective or absolute morality, then everything is just an opinion. Since murder is absolutely wrong, then God must have written this code on our hearts. This doesn't make sense with what we experience in reality. If God had done this, then we should expect his moral code to remain absolute across time. Even now, our moral foundations change depending on what society we live in. We don't, see that in, uh, we don't see that in Christianity. In fact, Christianity's moral foundation changes depending on time and place. In Numbers 31, 17 through 18, God commands his chosen people to abduct young girls after murdering their entire family, including all of the young boys. If you transpose that to present day, these would be horrible war crimes. But it's okay for them to do that because God told them to do that. If this isn't considered good or okay to do now, why did God command it? If this moral code is not immutable, then what explains our changing moral foundation? Since our common moral foundation changes, uh, uh, since our common moral foundation seems to change with the social norms of society, it seems like we are the ones that dictate what our moral foundation is. If we are the ones dictating what we see as morally right, wrong, and neutral, then we would expect a changing landscape of morality. That's exactly what we find in Christianity. We see religious people with differing opinions on what their absolute moral code is. Morality is an emergent property of a complex central nervous system. That is why we find primitive moral foundations in other forms of life. It's why... It's why our notion of right and wrong varies depending on the time and place that we exist. This provides an actual explanation for why morality exists as we experience it. Could there be some absolute moral foundation that exists? Sure, there could be. Uh, 
due to the human condition and how we experience our reality, we would never know if we attain such an immutable set of moral laws. So to summarize my case, basically, I don't think a belief in a deity is warranted due to the lack of sufficient evidence to support such a belief. The prior probability of any religious faith being correct is vanishingly small. The explanations that uh, theism provides are insufficient because they do not explain anything about our reality. And finally, all of the arguments for the existence of God fall short of showing that God most likely exists. So I, I know that was uh, relatively short compared to uh, the presentation that uh, Kevin had, and I think that I technically have a probably a few minutes here to sort of go over some of the things that uh, Kevin uh, brought up in, in, in the thing. So uh, I don't know if the moderator can let me know when I'm starting to, to breach on my time. Um, but... Uh, Kevin kind of started out with an argument from design saying that, oh, well, we uh, look at things and we know that they are designed because our brains are meant, are, are, are meant, quote unquote, designed to look for patterns in things. And um, this goes back to the, I believe it's the teleological argument. Uh, just because something looks designed does not necessarily mean that it is designed. Uh, Kevin did lay out some criteria for determining whether or not something was designed, but I think that you could find some situations where that particular criteria would not really be able or be sufficient enough to discern undesigned objects from designed objects. Uh, Kevin brought up archaeology, uh, whereas the arrowhead is a better uh, is a better example than say like fossils. Uh, fossils happen by a natural process. Those are things that look designed when you look at the rocks, but they're really not designed. What they are are representations of uh, the, the uh, uh, biological matter that uh, had its uh, biological matter uh, replaced with minerals. Uh, over long, long periods of time. So that would be a case where something looks designed but isn't actually designed. It actually happened by a natural process. Um, he also talked uh, a little bit, I noticed you brought up William Dembski. He's normally brought up for, uh, you know, the um, genetic entropy. You even, uh, Kevin, even mentioned uh, how mutations uh, don't really help evolution at all. In fact, I know at one part, uh, Kevin said that there are effectively no beneficial mutations, and that's just simply not true. Um, you can go to a website called uh, Talk Origins, and they actually have a full list of uh, experiments that have shown that beneficial mutations do happen. Now, mutations that happen in genetic code are mostly neutral. They don't have an effect on us one way or another. Uh, the bad mutations do happen, and sometimes they can be very detrimental. But the thing is, is that with evolution, it's the buildup of good mutations that allow a, an, organism to, uh, an organism to survive in its environment. So these bad mutations would not allow for an organism to survive in its environment and thus would not be propagated throughout the population. That's, how, that's why bad mutations do not survive long in a uh, population of organisms. It's the good mutations that allow them to survive that actually went out. He talked a lot about how uh, undirected mutations don't really help us uh, or, or don't really exist or don't really happen because they're all 
bad, but in reality, these seemingly random mutations happen, but they are non-randomly selected uh, by nature to uh, help that organisms to survive. Um, One really good example of this is uh, the pandas uh, that I've talked before about in Kevin's class. Um, They have a bone in their hand called the radial sesamoid uh, that seems to be modified in the pandas from its ancestor 40 million years ago. And the radial sesamoid was actually modified by uh, these seemingly random mutations to help it sur- help both of the species survive better in their environment. It allowed them to consume bamboo, their primary source of food, a lot easier. And so it allowed them to survive. This is the primary driving force of evolution. Now, he did mention how evolution doesn't necessarily disprove the idea of a God existing, and I would agree with that. There definitely could be a God that exists, and evolution still happens. So I wouldn't suggest saying that, oh, well, evolution disproves that we need a God. At most, you could say that evolution is just one of those facets of Christianity is one fact of reality that proves that one of the facets of Christianity is obsolete, uh, specifically the fundamentalist view of Genesis. So, um, let's see, let me go through my, uh, we started talking about genetic code, and what I have to say about genetic code is that we can interpret it as genetic code, like as code, as information, but inherently DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid, it's a chemical. This chemical reacts with certain uh, other chemicals in uh, various systems in order to produce different proteins. This is akin to like Diet Coke and regular Coke. Uh, I would and say that Diet Coke inherently contains any kind of useful information just because it has a chemical code behind it. Um, the change between Diet Coke and regular Coke uh, doesn't, doesn't prove anything about the existence of God. Um, so I, I, would, I would just caution the use of genetic code as information and uh, as a way to suggest that we need a creator in order for it to exist. And uh, I guess uh, I'll be done with that. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, John. That was awesome. Um, so uh, we're going to move into the 10-minute rebuttal of each. Um, it, it's a little bit difficult, the, the amount of content that, that uh, John covered there. <laughs> There's no way I can... I can uh, respond to all those in 10 minutes, but, but uh, maybe for future conversations, those, those sound like good topics. But um, I'm going to hop um, into what I was covering because my presentation actually responds to several of the points he made. I'm focusing on um, specifically, um, I'm focusing specifically on, uh, on the evidences for God. So, uh, Robert, I can't share my screen. Can you fix that? Robert's our tech guy, so. Oh, yeah, I just changed it. Now you should be able to. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so um, let's go back to this here. Okay, so I gave evidence one. I gave evidence two. Um, and and I, I heard a lot of what he was saying about, you know, uh, all religions could be wrong. That's most certainly true. Um, I'm not relying on religion or even specifically Christian belief in order to justify Uh, my belief in God. So I believe in God very specifically because to me, as far as I can tell, both the scientific, the historical, the logical evidence actually leads that to be the most probable 
uh, truth. Um, so it's most likely to be the case. Um, now, I know this argument too right here, uh, a lot of people, it comes up frequently because it's, it's such a common one, but I'm going to cover it simply because I'm going through, I have six big reasons, six big reasons why I've, I think the evidence overwhelmingly supports the probability that God does exist more than that he does not exist. And one of them has to do with this issue of where we came from. Again, what we're doing, it's, it's the inference to the best explanation. It's the process of elimination. You don't have a lot of options when it comes to where the universe came from. Either somebody made the universe or the universe made itself. That's really all you've got. And I don't think it makes much sense to come to the conclusion that the universe made itself. Einstein used to believe in a steady state universe. He, he used to believe the universe had no beginning in 1915, but his math actually caused him to change his mind and he concluded the universe did have a beginning. Um, and he even confessed that to a, one of his best friends that uh, he had actually altered his math in order to not come to the conclusion that the universe had a beginning because he didn't like the ramifications of the universe having a beginning, which indicated that there had to be some sort of being that actually caused the universe to start. And since then, we've had many, many scientists who have concluded, yes, the universe had a beginning. I'd say uh, this is generally accepted now in the scientific community that the universe had a beginning. LeMate was an astrophysicist who promoted the Big Bang event. Edwin Hubble concluded that based on the expansion of the universe, and you could only go so far back in time, you had to have a, a expansion. George Gamal said that because there's still heat in the universe, if it was infinitely old, it would already be cooled off. So it can't, be it can't have always existed. Therefore, there must have been a beginning to the universe. Arnold Penzias and Robert Wilson both uh, concluded there, there was a beginning to the universe based on the background radiation they were getting uh, from everywhere. So today, many people have concluded that yes, there was a beginning to the universe from a scientific basis. Now, the Bible already had that in it. In the beginning, in Genesis 1.1, it was already there. In Psalm 102, it says, in the beginning. They didn't have to write that, but there it is. There's a beginning. And so um, the Big Bang, of course, has huge problems. And people are trying to solve these problems right now. But everybody has confessed, yes, this is a big problem. Cosmologists have confessed this. Carl Sagan said, hey, the cosmos is all there is. And then when he was confronted with the idea of, well, where did the scientific laws come from that govern the way the universe developed, which are needed in order for galaxies to develop and all these sorts of things, then, then he said, yeah, you know what? That's a huge problem because they had to have been there. Fred Hoyle said somebody has tinkered with the universe. Um, essentially, it's too perfect in order to let life, and you've heard that, that's the fine-tuning argument or the anthropic principle. Um, Robert Penrose and Stephen Hawking specifically worked on a formula that when you go back in time, what they ended up with was a point of nothing. Literally, mathematically, you go, as you go back in time, you get to a point where there is literally nothing there. You can't have anything there. And the problem is, is how do you get something from nothing? Now, of course, there's still these ideas out, out there about the recycled universe, uh, the universe coming into existence, going out of existence. But what we're noticing is that science is basically pushing these out of the picture. They're not uh, justifiable. And people can believe them. That's fine. That's their prerogative. But the problem is you can't call it science, right? It's not observable. It's not testable. It's not repeatable. And what frustrates me a little bit is when people claim, oh, I have science, you have faith. But in fact, what I've noticed right on a regular basis 
For example, John says he doesn't believe in miracles. There's no miracles, right? But at the same time, he'll believe that a whole universe can come into existence from nothing. If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. And we can apply that to uh, life coming into existence from non-life. Um, that is, in essence, a miracle. Because uh, So it's kind of a, a cherry-picking which miracles you want to believe in. Um, the miracles that, that prop up your, your paradigm, yes, but um, where, we go, where we're going with the evidence is ultimately both scientifically from the design inference and as well as through process of elimination, the most probable <laughs> conclusion is that God does exist, which makes more sense that something made every, everything or nothing made everything. And ultimately it has to be a someone because you have to choose to start the universe. Inanimate, inanimate material cannot make any decisions, causal decisions, right? Um, but yet we see here in Scientific American, they're talking about um, everything could potentially have come from nothing. This is not scientific. I interviewed Lawrence Krauss on the radio. I, I interviewed him and he says, nothing is doing something. And not only that, it has to do something. But essentially what he's doing is equivocating. He's changing the definition of nothing to something else. Okay. And people will often talk about uh, uh, quantum fluctuations and uh, th these hypothetical theories about quantum fluctuations starting the universe. There's no evidence for that. They're purely hypothetical. There's no evidence at all that this could ever take place, that there could be a quantum fluctuation. And in order for a quantum fluctuation to take place, you have to have the universe already there, right? For the universe to make itself, it's got to pre-exist itself. You can't have a quantum fluctuation when there's literally nothing there. We're not talking about Lawrence Krauss's definition of nothing. We're talking about nothing. Um, and so there has to be something that pre-existed the universe. There's no way around it unless you're going to equivocate and change your definitions of, of your words. Um, so again, here, Discover Magazine, same thing. The universe burst into something from nothing. It got bigger. It became filled with even more stuff that came from nowhere. How is that possible? These are, these are stories. These are rescuing devices. This is not evidence. This is not scientific evidence. These are not scientific conclusions. These are just theories and stories, special pleading, ad hoc. These are just somebody's way of trying to justify what they believe, even though the evidence is to the contrary. You violate laws of logic when you say that nothing made everything. The principle of sufficient reason is a law of logic. It says things don't happen for no reason. That just doesn't happen. Um, even if we don't understand how there are uh, quantum particles that pop into existence and go out of existence, it doesn't mean just because we don't understand it that there's not a reason for it. All around us, everywhere we look, there are reasons for everything that goes on. And so we have no reason to think that a universe is going to pop into existence, the biggest event ever, right, for no reason whatsoever. That's not a good conclusion. And so for that reason, I believe it's more probable that God exists than that he doesn't exist. So we also violate the law of causality, which is a very common argument, right? But the, here's what people seem to misunderstand. Skeptics have no cause and no reason for the beginning of the universe. They don't even have a plausible guess. The idea that nothing made everything denies known laws of logic and science. It's not just unscientific, it's anti-scientific. And so if we're arguing about who has science on their side, I believe that the, the theistic worldview by far has science and logic on its side. And of course, the question that comes up all the time, which is, if God made everything, who made God? Well, there is a, a very good and logical answer to that question. Um, evidence for, I'll try to get through this one, life comes from life according to theism, but according to atheism, life comes from non-life. And so what we're looking at here is the scientific definition of life is that... Um, 
uh, organism reacts to stimuli, metabolizes, and reproduces or grows, right? Rocks are not alive. They don't do these things. Therefore, they don't have life. Louis Pasteur ultimately concluded that life does not sp spontaneously arise. And he came up with the law of biogenesis. Now, today people are saying the law of biogenesis isn't actually a law. But this isn't because the laws of biogenesis have been proven wrong or there's evidence against them. It's because if the law of biogenesis is true, you can't have purely material causes to everything around us. You can't be a materialist, somebody who doesn't believe in the supernatural. And so um, the law of biogenesis says all life comes from preexistent life. H how is it possible that anybody could consider thinking that life could come into existence from non-life? It's completely against science. Science are made up of pro uh, cells are made up of proteins, 250 proteins approximately for the simplest living cell. And proteins are made up of amino acids. To get one uh, protein from amino acids, about 20 different amino acids that make up a single protein. The problem is amino acids do not naturally connect together. They need enzymes to connect together and they don't. They don't naturally connect together. In fact, the prebiotic soup that people talk about so often where life would have come from is thermodynamically unstable. If you calculate the probability of a protein forming itself by chance with no design, the probability is 1 in 10 to the 164. And that's conservative. That's not, that's not, a, that, that's a huge number, right? If you, the, the, a million seconds is 11 days. A billion seconds is 32 days. A trillion seconds is 32,000 years. Uh, uh, 32,000 years. So, this number is 1 in 10 to the 164. That's the probability of a single functional protein. The amount of people living in the USA is 300 million. The US national debt, 22 trillion, I believe, and growing. Sadly, that's depressing. Um, the amount of particles in the universe is 10 to the 80. Now, that's a huge number, but that's half as much as the probability of a functional protein making itself by accident. That is less than half. The amount of seconds that evolutionists say has passed since the Big Bang is 10 to the 16. Now, let me explain something to you, and I'll end on this. To get one single protein, the probability is 1 in 10 to the 164. This is hard math. This is not guessing. This is not theoretical. This is hard scientific data and math. 1 in 10 to the 164 to get one protein. You need 250 of these to get a single cell. Remember, proteins are not alive. It's not like they're walking around going, man, I really need to find another protein. I'm gonna, I really want to get together with 249 other proteins. Let's do this. No, they're like rocks. They can't find each other. And so just to get one protein, and amino acids aren't alive either, you that's the number. So which is more probable? That there was a super intelligent being that organized those proteins, which ultimately organized to make a cell, which ultimately was able to reproduce and then keep going, right? Or is it more probable that this happened all by the roll of the dice, ultimately by an accident? Remember, they are thermodynamically unstable amino acids. They do not come together like magnetically or something. There's no natural process through which they come together. They have to be forced together, right? Um, scientists have to do this in a lab very carefully under very, uh, very uh, particular conditions. Otherwise, it all falls apart because it's thermodynamically unstable. And so I think by far the best conclusion is that there is a super intelligent being. And could all the religions potentially be wrong? Mm, they could be. According to John, yeah, they could be. But that wouldn't mean that God doesn't exist, even if they were all wrong.
because the, the evidence actually supports the idea, right, that God does exist. Okay, I'm done. And uh, John, you're up. Okay. Uh, thank you, Kevin, uh, for that. Um, so just uh, trying to go through here what uh, Kevin covered in his uh, very first uh, part of his uh, of his presentation here. Um, So um, starting out in his uh, response, uh, Kevin uh, pretty much made the connection that because we transition from a steady state theory uh, of the universe or the existence of the universe to the universe had a beginning, that inherently means that the Bible got it correct. Now, the, this is kind of a jump in logic because there's 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 no indication that the uh, people that wrote the Bible had any kind of modern concept of cosmology. Um, the fact that we now have actual evidence to suggest that the uh, this particular universe started at some point in time does not uh, in uh, does not inherently mean that the Bible is correct. Um, we actually don't know what the universe was like prior to the start of this universe. We don't know if other universes uh, even uh, are, do exist or don't exist. So there's no way for us to say that the start of our universe is the absolute actual first start of every universe out there, every possible universe that could be out there. We just simply don't know. We don't have anything that suggests that that can't happen uh, is the problem with that. Um, Kevin also mentioned how abiogenesis and the beginning of the universe from quote-unquote nothing uh, is a miracle, and I really wouldn't call those miracles. We have several experiments that show the, how the building blocks of life could have developed naturally and how they could have eventually came, uh, became the natural life that we see on the earth today. The beginning of the universe didn't start out from uh, nothing as Kevin or anybody that normally references nothing. Like if you look at my hand here, uh, you know, I have nothing, like there's no, like now there's a pen but now there's nothing in my hand. Well, this is not a scientific concept of nothing. The scientific concept of nothing uh, is, it still has an electrical charge in it. And uh, what the scientific uh, definition of nothing would be, would be like removing all radiation, all matter, uh, any, everything from a, a single bit of space. But what we find is, is that when, even when we do that, there's still an electrical charge there. And that's because the scientific version of nothing is still something. Um, just because we can't see it or really experience it doesn't mean that it's not there. We have been able to measure it, though. Um, Kevin also talked about uh, the quantum fields and how it's all hypothetical and we don't have anything to suggest that that is true. Uh, when in fact we do have a lot of evidence that seems to comport with quantum theory and the use of quantum scalar fields. Uh, 
I know anytime that I've mentioned the quantum uh, theory for how the universe began, it's always the most likely or, or the best guess for how it started. Not that that is indeed, in fact, the way that it started, but this is one idea that currently is not refuted uh, that fits the evidence that we have for how this universe could have, quote unquote, popped into existence from nothing. I would also venture to, on the topic of the Bible being correct about the beginning of the universe, I would want to ask why wasn't this God more specific about the universe? Because like, for instance, we know that the universe inflated uh, it to uh, a little bit smaller than the size that it is now. Uh, in the matter of 10 to the negative 32 seconds. We know that this happened 13.5 billion years ago. We know that the first bit of light wasn't even able to traverse through this universe until 300,000 years, uh, what we would experience now as years, after the inflation of the universe. Atoms weren't able to form until about that time either. I would, I would want to know why these early people, if they had this God to inform them, why didn't this God inform them more precisely about how this universe began? Because these are things that we know for sure. Um, as for the evidence for the quantum scalar fields, uh, we do have evidence in the form of virtual particles of this energy trans, uh, transforming. Uh, basically, virtual particles, they transform uh, energy into these particles that, uh, that uh, exist, and then they transfer back. And it happens very, very short, very short amount of time. But these virtual particles do seem to pop in and out of existence from what's seems to be nothing. Um, of course, if you look more into the science, you'll find a lot more detailed uh, descriptions of this. Um, he also uh, talked a lot about the law of biogenesis, and um, it, it actually isn't a law. This was actually proposed by Louis Pasteur, who was doing experiments with flies and rotting meat. And basically what he refuted is the idea of a, a sort of a creation idea, spontaneous generation. Uh, that, that would be a creationist uh, sort of idea. Uh, the law of biogenesis was just a phrase that was coined by Louis Pasteur. It's not an actual law, at least not in science. Um, so the main important thing to take away here is the fact that Louis Pasteur wasn't looking to disprove evolution or abiogenesis, which is really what the argument is used for is abiogenesis. And um, he wasn't looking to disprove that. He was looking to, uh, you know, figure out, you know, why uh, flies, you know, uh, come into existence. Uh, th there was an idea at the time that flies just spontaneously generated from meat. So he was trying to disprove that idea. So the law of biogenesis doesn't actually say anything at all about whether or not life can come from non-life. Um, then Kevin uh, talked about the how many proteins it would take in order for a simple cell to exist. And, you know, that just looks at how simple cells exist now. We don't know the composition of these simple cells when they started developing uh, back when life was starting to form. In fact, 
we have a lot of evidence uh, for the like RNA world uh, hypothesis where RNA, self-replicating RNA, eventually changed into what we would experience as cells. We already know how, uh, how uh, prokaryotic cells developed into eukaryotic cells. And this is by other, uh, other uh, single-celled organisms invading some of these cells and then creating this um, symbiotic relationship with the cell to the point where the cell couldn't exist or couldn't, couldn't live without that other uh, entity living inside it. And so they eventually formed into a eukaryotic cell. And that's what we have today are these eukaryotic cells and those are structured cells with a nucleus mitochondria and other organelles inside the cells while prokaryotic cells those are ones that do not have any structure inside them and they would have been uh most like the original life that ended up developing although we don't know how much uh how much like they are but they're closer to it now he talks about the amount of time needed or the amount of changes or the amount of proteins needed in order for these things to happen. But what he fails to, uh, see, what he seems to fail to understand is the fact that these processes don't take place linearly. Uh, just because it takes that much time in order for, or uh, that, those many, that many proteins in order to build a cell does not mean that you have to build one protein and then the next protein and then the next protein. We have chemical processes that go on all the time and instant, what would seem like instantaneously. There, there's, there's a lot of chemical reactions that go on. So while he uses big numbers to suggest that it's impossible for these things to happen, it doesn't mean that they are impossible, just that they are highly unlikely. And I would agree that it's highly unlikely for life to develop. But given a, a big enough data set, you can 100% guarantee that life will arise naturally, even when the probability of it is very low. So I think that's uh, all of my uh, 10 minutes, and uh, I guess I will, I will let it go to the moderator, Kevin. Thanks, John. Um, okay, so we're at the conclusion part, well, the conclusions that we're drawing here. Um, I think for me, you know, um, I've constantly challenged my Christian beliefs because I, I like to know the truth. So I put myself out there with people who have different views of mine because I want to see if there's anything that, that holds up to scrutiny. So, uh, you know, I have a radio program. I've, I've, uh, shameless plug. I've, I've interviewed Michael Shermer. I've interviewed Lawrence Krauss. I've interviewed Dan Barker. And so I enjoy the opportunity to hear other people's ideas. I enjoy the opportunity to hear what other people think. I've interviewed many people of different religions. And so uh, my point is, is that the reason I believe that the most plausible conclusion was, is that uh, God exists is because otherwise I think what you're dealing with is a naturalism of the gaps. So people always accuse people of God of the gaps. But um, what I would argue is that uh, when you say, hey, we'll figure it out someday, and sure, you know what, if that happens, if all of a sudden somebody's able to generate life from non-life naturally, right, with no intelligent mind involved, then I think that would be a, a pretty significant uh, issue when it comes to um, the Bible and God and, and the necessity of God and these sorts of things. But in the meantime, um, 
what we're dealing with here is that, okay, I'm going to reserve judgment, even though the evidence is heavy against me. And, and you know, John um, even confessed, he said, I think it's highly unlikely that um, life would come into existence by itself. And so, again, what we're debating here is the probability of God's existence, meaning, right, uh, Michael Shermer said to me, well, I'm a skeptic. I need a certain amount of evidence before I believe something. But um, I felt like he was a little bit uh, insincere in the sense that when it came to a universe starting from nothing, which, again, any cosmologist is going to tell you, we don't know how to do this. We don't see any way possible. We don't see any way forward. And uh, as long as I continue to say, well, in that case, um, I'm going to continue to, to maintain my atheism, despite the evidence to the contrary, I would call that a naturalism of the gaps. It's, it's hoping that at some point in the future, that issue gets worked out. But the issue is such a big issue that ultimately, uh, you're, you're um, basing your philosophical foundation of atheism or agnosticism or what it might be on what I would consider faith, right? It's not science-based, it's faith-based. And, um, you know, John uh, said that there are studies that show we're able to uh, generate, you know, we're coming close to generating life from non-life, or we're coming close to understanding how quantum fluctuations work and this can happen. Um, I, I'd, I'd love to see the studies that actually demonstrate that to be the case. But as far as I know, there is not, science has not come any closer since 1952 in the Yuri Miller experiment to um, being able to come to the conclusion that, that uh, you can generate life from non-life. And, you know, um, John said that the law of biogenesis is actually not a law. Well, I believe that to be incorrect. The fact of the matter is, is we have no evidence whatsoever to the contrary that life can be generated from non-life. We have no examples of that in science, not in the laboratory, not outside of the laboratory. That has never, ever happened. And therefore, uh, typically when you establish a law, the law of gravity, the laws of physics, the law of biogenesis, it's something that there is no evidence to the contrary of. There is no spontaneous generation. And Louis Pasteur, by the way, was a Bible-believing Christian. And part of his part of why he was dealing with this was because he felt that it violated what was set out in the scriptures. And therefore he felt that it was a very significant issue that he wanted to make sure scientifically he came to a good conclusion about. And the law of biogenesis states two things. And that is that all life comes from preexistent life and all life reproduces after its own kind. And that is a kind or a family of animal. And so so that being the case, we currently have no evidence to the contrary. There is no, n nothing in science that has violated the law of biogenesis. And if we wanted to talk about the issue of animals reproducing after their kind all over the world, what do we see? We see monkeys make monkeys, rabbits make rabbits, uh, kangaroos make kangaroos. And so we have all the scientific evidence we need to support the creation hypothesis in that regard. What we've never observed, never observed is animals changing to fundamentally different kinds. We've never seen that process, that molecules to man evolution. Um, we see fossils, but these are just dead things. They're not reproducing. There's no observational evidence that, they're, that, a, that a mud skipper is changing into a, a salamander or a salamander into a, uh, into a lizard or a lizard into a bird or a bird into a mammal. We do not have the observational evidence. And what do I hear every time uh, that's brought up? I hear, well, because it takes millions of years. And again, people are free to believe that, they're, but they're making, a, they're making an assumption. They're making an assertion that I would say is not warranted um, by the scientific evidence. The scientific evidence doesn't support that conclusion. 
And until um, we have evidence uh, of how something can come into existence from nothing, until we have evidence of how life can come from non-life, until we have evidence of how one kind of animal can change into a fundamentally different kind, there is no mechanism. Undirected mutations, by the way, I didn't say, uh, John said I said that there are no beneficial mutations. I didn't say that. I said there are no equivocally beneficial mutations. I I'm sorry, unequivocally beneficial mutations, and that's totally different. There are beneficial mutations, but an unequivocally beneficial mutation is a mutation that only has a good side, it has no downside. We have equivocally beneficial mutations, which are mutations which have both a upside and a downside. But by far, and the, the most um, conservative elements, the most conservative uh, estimates are one in 10,000, meaning you get one beneficial mutation for every 10,000 negative mutations, uh, point mutations. And so the problem is, is that you can't accumulate enough good mutations in time to overcome the amount of mutations that are dragging you down. So there is no process forward. Um, and and uh, so anyway, uh, that, that uh, I think is my summary. Um, I think there's a lot more evidence to support the God hypothesis, but um, obviously we're limited on our debate here. We will have the Q&A after John does his... Um, does his summary here. Go ahead, John. Well, uh, first I want to say thank you, Kevin, for, you know, having me on for this debate and uh, for hosting it and everything. I really do appreciate any time that I get to discuss these particular topics, because I do think that these topics are important for us to, to discuss. Fundamentally, though, my my entire position rests on just a few really simple logical facts. Um, one of those would be that the supernatural has yet to be proven to actually happen. We don't have any evidence that, uh, that, that definitely suggests that the supernatural uh, exists. Um, any supernatural event that we've uh, experienced, seem to have experienced in the past has always been able to be explained by a natural uh, process. That was my entire point going through like the lightning example. Um, <clears throat> So whenever we're looking to explain some kind of event that happens in, in reality, like uh, life uh, existing here on Earth or the universe coming into existence, the prior probability of any supernatural claim being that, well, God decided to create this universe or God decided to create life, those would be supernatural explanations. But the prior probability of those supernatural explanations being correct is vanishingly low. And the alternative is, uh, is natural explanations. And those have always been proven to supersede supernatural ones. And so those are just the, the, the basic, that's the basic underlying uh, thought process that I have on any one of these, uh, any one of these events that we need to explain. Now, one big thing that I do want to push here is that it's okay to say that I don't know. It's okay that we don't know the exact process by which abiogenesis happened. It's okay that we don't know how this universe came into existence. But to make the logical leap that God had to be the one to do it or that some supernatural deity had to be the one to create life or start this universe, 
without any kind of connection that we've been able to establish to the supernatural is a gigantic leap in logic. And it's most likely the answer that it, these are natural explanations. So while I may not know what the exact process of abiogenesis is or any particular process in this reality, um, it doesn't necessarily entail that God had to do it. Uh, I noticed that Kevin, uh, you know, had kind of a false dichotomy when he was like, well, there's two possible answers. Either God created this universe or the universe created itself. And I think that it's uh, not disingenuous, but I, I think that it's really short-sighted to suggest that those are the only two options uh, for this because uh, then it becomes, well, which definition of God? Which particular God uh, wanted to create this universe? Why did God create this universe? What seems to be designed to, you know, snuff out life rather than uh, allow life to arise. 99.9% .9 of this universe is uninhabitable. Earlier when I said that it was highly unlikely that life would uh, form on its own, that doesn't mean that it's impossible. It just means that there's a low probability of it happening, and that's what we experience in reality a low probability of it happening. But if you have a sufficient enough uh, data set for this event to happen, then it will 100% happen. This goes back to what's known as the pigeonhole theory. And this isn't like pigeonholing somebody into a particular subject or niche. Pigeonhole theory would be like, let's say you have this cube or this board with 12 holes in it and you have 13 pigeons how many of those holes will contain two pigeons? The answer would be uh, definitely one. One of those holes will definitely have two pigeons in it. So that makes the probability of one of the holes having two pigeons 100%. And that's exactly what we see for uh, life existing in this universe. It will 100% happen uh, because of the fact that we know that it happened, but also there is a sufficient and, uh, sufficiently large enough uh, set of planets and systems that would allow it to arise naturally. Um, he also talked about how the, the law of biogenesis uh, not being an actual law, but I would still contend that the law of biogenesis doesn't say anything about abiogenesis. It only states what Louis Pasteur experiences in, uh, it, in, in life as we know it now, that animals produce after their kind and that life comes from life. That's what we experience. But that, does, however, does not say anything about the possibility of life being produced from non-life, just what he observed in that experiment. <clears throat> and I get the idea that if we don't have evidence for something, then you shouldn't believe in that. But I would hazard uh, to say that uh, we don't have solid evidence that this God supposedly exists. So therefore we shouldn't necessarily believe in it. Uh, I think the position of, I don't know if a God exists because that's my position. I don't know if a God exists, but I don't believe one to exist. And that's because we don't have the evidence to support that. And I'm perfectly fine with uh, theists if they want to say, well, I don't know if a God created this universe or not, but I choose to believe that a God, uh, uh, created this universe. Uh, that's perfectly fine. But I would, I would say that you can't necessarily prove uh, that particular belief, um, which you could conversely turn around on me, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, 
throughout this entire discussion, I hope that everybody takes both sides and carefully, uh, uh, carefully analyzes them, analyze what you've heard here today. Uh, I don't suggest that I'm absolutely correct in anything. So definitely always be learning, go out there and, and, you know, read these science articles, even if it, even if it disagrees with what your particular faith is or your particular idea about this universe is definitely look at those and, and expand, uh, you know, your, expand your mind uh, on these particular topics. And uh, with that, I think that uh, I'm done and uh, I guess we can go into Q and A. Hey, uh, there we go. <laughs> Thanks. I can't unmute myself sometimes on this. But uh, hey, uh, John, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. And uh, I really appreciate your willingness to, to just uh, have this discussion. It's pretty awesome. So thanks again. Uh, if you guys want to write a thank you in the uh, chat box there to John for being here. Um, he's awesome. So uh, so anyway, um, we're going to do a Q&A here. But before we do, John, um, I wanted to give you a chance to um, just share your YouTube channel and uh, anything else that you, you'd like to point people towards. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, so I do have a YouTube channel. It's Godless Engineer. You can go over there. In fact, I put up my portion of like the presentation and some of the answers that I gave to questions uh, on my channel. Um, so if you want to go and check out the lecture that I did for uh, Kevin's class, you can definitely go there and check that out. And uh, I do a lot of different things. We actually do a Bible study every Tuesday, although I would only suggest it if, if you're a, a bit more of an adult mindset. Um, uh, we, we take a little bit more of an adult view on the Bible at first. Um, but it, it, anyways, we do a lot of different topics over there and we cover a lot of different things. So uh, definitely go over there and subscribe uh, if, if you would. Uh, we'll check out some videos first and then subscribe if you would like. Awesome. Um, we're going to post a poll uh, to see if you guys have opinions about who won the debate. Um, people, uh, it, it's just interesting to me. Um, of course, polls don't determine truth, but, but uh, it's still interesting to see, to hear people's opinions. So we are posting that poll right now. Um, let's uh, go into the Q&A now.